We've spent the last couple of weeks, we've spent this entire month talking about some of, and it's very hard uh, for me to take four weeks and think about the attributes and the characteristics of God and just pick four of them, but that's what we have done. And we have spent the last couple of weeks talking about some rather lofty things. There's no other way to put it. They just stretch your mind and they stretch your heart. And if you think about God's holiness and God's sovereignty long enough, Um, it's almost as if your head will just explode. Um, And so this week, I just want to bring everything down to to ground level, if you will. And I don't do that, and I don't want to do that to cheapen the impressiveness and the majesty of God, but I do want to give us a complete picture. And we talked this morning during our Bible study time that at all times, all of God's characteristics are being displayed. There is no quarreling. There is no fighting between God's characteristics. So he is not more loving than he is wrathful or more gracious than he is um, judgmental um, or, or a judging God or a, uh, a love. He's all these things to, together. But here is to me sometimes when I think about this concept, and this is where we are. Who, who is God really? God the Father, the quandary that we often find ourselves in When it comes to combining the character is, although he is high and lofty and he is holy and sovereign, as we've been talking about, he has come near. He is near right now in this world, in our lives. God is with us. It's the word that many theologians would use, a big word called eminence. He is not just out there and transcendent, but he is here and with us. He is Imminent. And most importantly for this morning, I want to emphasize one aspect and one trait through many different descriptions. I want to use a lot of interchangeable words this morning to talk about the compassion and the goodness of God. Isaiah chapter 43, to start us off, this won't be our main text, but in Isaiah 43 verses 1 through 4, here's what Isaiah has to say, but now, or what God has to say about himself. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you, says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as a ransom for your freedom. I gave Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Others were given in exchange for you. I traded their lives for yours because you are precious to me. I love this last line here. Just hold on to this line right here. You are honored. I love you. Now we understand that the book of Isaiah is written very really and truly to the nation of Israel. But I believe that as the spiritual ancestors of Israel, what God says specifically to Israel there really is what God says to all of us all throughout Scripture, doesn't he? That Scripture's testament, that Scripture's witness really is a love letter of God to us. I believe that if you look in every place, in every book, every book will say that exact same thing there. I love you. 
And so that's where I want to go this morning and what I want to talk about this morning. A.W. Tozer says about God's goodness and about God's compassion, it is most important that we know about God's goodness, His love and His mercy, and yes, His justice and His compassion. And that we know what kind of God He is. What is God like? It is a question that must be answered if we're going to be any kind of Christian at all. And what he would say as he continued writing there is that we cannot just fluff that question off of, well, I know what God is like. I, I, I mean, I, for, for me, I've spent my entire life in church. You would think that I should know what God is like, but we don't just fluff that off and we don't specifically just take that idea for granted. Oh, I know what God is like. I know who God is. He continues on saying that Christianity and really every one of our individual faiths at any given time is strong or it is weak depending on its concept of God. The basic trouble, he says, with the church today is her unworthy conception of God. Now listen to this. A local church will only be as great as its conception of God, what it thinks about God, who it thinks God is. And then specifically, and more personally, an individual believer will be a success or a failure depending on what he or she thinks of God. It is critically important that we have a knowledge of the Holy One, that we know what God is like. I love that part, what he says there. Every person in this world, every believer sitting in this church today defines their life as a success or a failure, not by how much money you have, not by what kind of job you have, not by what your house looks like, none of that stuff. It is simply dependent upon what you think about God, of who God is. Our devotion is little because oftentimes our God is little. Our commitment is weak because oftentimes our God or the gods that we worship in life are weak. Our faith is shameful because the God we serve is shameful and it's all because we do not see God as he is. And if we're honest, we'll readily admit that in some way or maybe some ways that understanding and embracing God's holiness and majesty and sovereignty is a bit easier to grab a hold of sometimes because that's how we're supposed to see God, right? As, the, as out there, away from us, untouchable, unapproachable. It's often how, times how people will see God. We're not supposed to imagine that God is gentle and caring and close and concerned with us, right? It's what we often are taught in Christianity. I was talking in Bible study that oftentimes we see God in two polar opposite ways. Either God is the bad cop who wants to zap us, who wants to get us at every possible turn, or God is just the good cop who just, all he wants to do is just love us. And so we need to find a somewhere in between that is that God is both of these things at the same time. He is not a bad cop, but he is 
righteous, and he is just, and he is holy, but he is also loving, gracious, compassionate. This is what God has done multiple times in history. He has come down in the greatest moment in history, come down to this earth to be with us. And scripture would tell us not to just be with us, but to be like us, to know us in every single possible way so that we can understand his love and his compassion and his mercy. Guys, a a skewed and a distorted view of God would have us see him in a way that causes us to believe that he is just out there but not right here. And part of the problem is that we, what we do in life is we view each other personally through oftentimes our sinful actions. What, what someone has done. But God, on the other hand, is, is above that. He views people through the lens of his love and his grace and his mercy. God doesn't view us for what we have done. He views us for what we can be, what he has created us to be. In fact, I love the way that the psalmist puts this, and I think this really encapsulates so much of what we're going for this morning and how we see God in his goodness and in his grace and in his mercy. Psalm 84 verse 11 simply says this, The Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us, I I love that by the way, He gives us His grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. Now that doesn't say that God gives us a bunch of good things, that He blesses our socks off. He does do that. But We don't depend on that to know that God is good and that God has compassion. For for many people, and maybe there's even some of us in here this morning, that at some point in our life, we we cannot say that we see any fun or any, I would describe it this way, pleasure in a future where God is in control. That God is just a God who somehow wants to make us miserable. He wants us to go and serve in places that we can't even pronounce the name and that we won't won't be able to experience anything good in life. That's what we think of. That's why I feel like we have such a hard time of allowing God to just be in control of our lives. Do you, God, really have my best intentions at heart? Will you really be good? And oftentimes, a warped view of God makes us think that he only, like I said, wants us to be miserable. Or he only wants us to feel like we're under the gaze of his judgment. Guys, that is such an incomplete and such a skewed vision of God. And often ask, Lord, how can I trust you with my life? How can I, we talked about last week, God being in control of all things. How, God, can I give you control when I am not sure that you will do what's good and best for me? And this is a really important and a really core question. And again, I think a question that is fair to ask that we should ask. And not just fluff it off, but really ask this question. Do we truly believe that God is good? good. 
and understand what that concept of goodness really means. Do we believe that he is kind and he is compassionate and he is full of grace and he is abounding in a love for us that is without limit? read a book this week, and like I said, I've read it a couple, three times. It's by Chip Ingram. It's called The Real God. And he says he had a moment in his life when he realized that he did not really, truly believe that God was good. He says, I had not believed he was good. I falsely assumed that he did not have my best interests at heart and that a deeper commitment to him would likely result in my missing the things I wanted most in life. It's such an important, important line. Because I think for so many people, they really think that if I choose God, I'm really going to miss out some, on some things that I really want in this life. Oh, my friend, that could not be further from the truth. And I hope by the end of this sermon this morning and the words of God, you will see that he doesn't want you to miss out on anything that he has for you in life. He said, I was wrong to rely on my vague impressions and I needed to see God clearly as he has actually revealed himself. Guys, we need to do the same thing in our lives. We have to see God for all of who he is, which is why our text this morning is so important. If you have your Bibles or your device, Exodus 34 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, I just want to read straight through this text to start off this morning, and then I want to take a step back with the time that we have left to really take in the full impact of what God is saying as he reveals himself specifically here to Moses, but God reveals himself, and people pick up on this in scripture constantly over and over again. Exodus chapter 34, starting at verse 1, reading through verse 4 to start. Then the Lord told Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. I will write on them the same words that were on the tablets you smashed. I just want to stop there for a moment and give you the context of where we're at. This is God re-upping and recommitting to the covenant he has made with his people. We remember back in Exodus 20, God gave the Ten Commandments for the very first time. But what happened shortly after that? As Moses comes down from the mountain, he sees that Israel has given itself over to false gods. To Specifically, they're worshiping a golden calf. And Moses, in his anger, does what? Throws the stones down, crushes them. So this is what God is doing here. He is essentially saying, not just to Moses, but all of Israel, I am, I'm renewing my commitment to you. Be ready in the morning to climb up Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. No one else may come with you. In fact, no one is to appear anywhere on the mountain. Don't even let the flocks or the herds graze near the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two tablets of stone like the first ones, and early in the morning he climbed Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And like I said, this is very, very important what we're getting ready to read here in just a moment. And remembering this is on the heels of, in the context, has just happened that Israel has had probably one of its worst moments. Worshiping false gods. Just, like, think about that. Re like, recount that whole scenario. And they come to Aaron and they say, hey, uh, we don't know what's happened with Moses. He's been gone for a really long time. And so we want, to, we want to worship some gods. 
And for some unknown reason, don't really understand it. There's no explanation in scripture. Aaron says, bring me all of your gold. Bring me all of your jewelry, everything. We're going to melt the sucker down. We're going to make it into a calf. I, I don't know what makes someone jump to that and think that, but that's what happens. And sh- shockingly and strikingly enough, after everything that Israel had seen to this point, all the plagues, the Passover, the Exodus, the Red Sea, everything in the wilderness to this point that they have seen, and they say this, these, these, this is the God who has brought us out of Egypt. Just stop for a moment. How incredibly offended and disgusted would you be if you were God in that moment? I would be done. It would be over. It would be like Thanos in the Avengers and gone. That's what it would be like for me. That is the context that we find ourselves in, and the people of Israel find themselves with a a really big, I, I think it's a dual problem, honestly. They can't live with God. How, how in the world could a holy God live among a sinful and a rebellious people like this? And they can't live without God. I want you to go back with me just a little bit here to Exodus 33, and I just want to read a couple verses. After this incident of the golden calf, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 33, 1, Get going, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. Go to the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I said to them, I will give this land to your descendants. And in verse 3, he says this, go up to this land that flows with milk and honey. But listen to this, I will not travel among you. What is he saying there? I will not be with, I cannot be with you because you are a stubborn and rebellious people. If I were to travel with you for even a moment, I would destroy you. Guys, that is the problem of life. How in the world could we be with a holy God when we are just the same as that? Stubborn and rebellious. How could anybody in this world be close to a God like that? I would, I would surely destroy you along the way. But Moses himself understands, I, I, God, you can't be with us, but we can't live without you. Exodus 33, again, going down to verse 12, it says, One day Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, take these people to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name, and I look favorably on you. If it's true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways. Let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. I love this right here, too. Everything will be fine for you. So in one moment, just verses before, just in moments before, God has said, I can't, I'm not going with you. I cannot go with you. I cannot be with you on this trip because what I will do will not be good for you. Moses says, you, you, you got you to go with us. I want to know you, God. And God says, I'll go with you. Everything is going to be fine for you. And then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. I wonder how many times in life we come to moments like that and we really, truly understand that God's presence is 
the most important and the deepest thing that we need in life? Have you ever stopped in your life and said essentially those words, like, God, I won't go anymore. I won't move another inch unless I know that you are going to go with me. They cannot live without God. And so in verse 17, the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked for, for I look favorably on you, and I know you by name. Now I believe what we're going to talk about this morning, what the rest of Scripture reveals, is not just about Moses, and not just about the nation of Israel, that at so many moments of your life and my life, God has looked at us, and all he really wants us to hear, all he wants to say to us, and for us to take into our heart of hearts is that I look favorably on you. I want the best for you. I want good things and great things for you because I know you by name. You are precious. You are mine. And that's what Exodus 34 and these first few verses that we read sets us up for a big, loud, ringing answer to the question, who are you, God? Moses asks at the very end of 33 here, he says, Lord, I want you to show me your glory. I want to know who you really are. And what does God say to Moses? Buckaroo, you could not handle all of me. You cannot see my face and live. But I'll tell you what, I'll let you see just a little smidgen of who I am. And what we get in Exodus 34 actually is the result of that. We often think that what he talks about happens in 33, but him revealing himself to Moses happens in chapter 34. And this is what happens after these first few verses. Listen with me, starting at verse 5 again, picking up. Then the Lord came down in a cloud, and I love this phrase here. He stood there with Moses. Now, does that mean that he physically stood there with Moses? No. It's a figure of speech, but I believe with every shred of my being that Moses felt God's presence then and there. That, that in a way, Moses felt that God was standing there with him. That is personal. That is close. And God called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger. I am filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Now, when you in your life are trying to get to know someone, to get acquainted with someone, and you want to know who they really are, there are really two ways to do that. You either ask around, you ask friends, and you ask coworkers, you ask family, who is this person? Tell me about who they really are. Or you can just simply walk right up them, to them and directly ask them, and who are you? Tell me what really makes you tick. And this is the option that Moses goes with here in Exodus 34. 
Again, he asked in, in 33, show me your glory, the full expression of who you are. God says that ain't not going to happen. And so God here in, in chapter 34 answers Moses, not with an appearance, but with attributes, a whole list of attributes, a, a theology, of you, if you will, of who God really is. Moses wants to see something very dramatic and something very spectacular, but God gives him words, 51 words to be very specific, that describe who God is. And again, guys, these words, we're just going to walk through them here uh, just for a moment and really look at what God is saying about himself, what is true about God, who God is, so that we can see God for who he really is. These words, in fact, are so important that Moses would bring them up again and remind God when he intercedes for the children of Israel after they have failed to enter the land in Numbers chapter 14. Nehemiah will pull these truths out in Nehemiah chapter 9. Jeremiah will quote this very passage in Jeremiah 32. The prophets Joel and Jonah knew this passage by heart because they quote it freely in word for word. Shades of this passage appear in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 1 Kings chapter 3, Lamentations chapter 3, Daniel chapter 9, and Nahum chapter 3. It is all over the place. Which is to say, guys, what we read here in Exodus 34 is a foundational statement about who God is. In fact, someone has put it this way, it's no exaggeration to say that Exodus 34, 6 is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. And so I would encourage you right now where you are, if you are a person who writes in your Bible, you better pull out your pen, your pencil, your sharpie, whatever you do, your highlighter, and you better highlight that sucker. If that's true, and this is one of the most important verses, foundational statements in all of the Bible, how does it better help us to see God? We basically get two very crucial aspects about God and His character. And the first one is this, that He gives and says who He really is. What does He open up with here? And He says, the Lord called out His name. The Lord, the Lord. Or Yahweh, Yahweh. Or I am, I am. The actual technical phrase that he says here is Yahweh, Yahweh, El. Which would mean I am, I am God. I don't depend on anybody else. The repetition here is to remind Moses that the God who spoke to him all the way back in Exodus chapter 3 is the same God who is speaking to him here. It sets the tone for the entire moment that God is involved with humanity. God is not detached. God is not aloof. God is not sitting back and twiddling his thumbs or snoring and not paying attention to his people. He is involved. He cares. He is concerned. He desires to show his compassion and he desires to be close to his people. Not just to Moses and to Israel, but right where you sit today. God wants you to hear that. I, I care. If you were to look back at Exodus chapter 2, very famous passage of Scripture there, this is the moment that I believe that speaks so much to God's compassion and His wanting to be close to His people. Exodus 2, verse 23 through 25. Years passed and the king of Egypt died. 
But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I love verse 25. And he looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. It was time for him to show the compassion that he has. That literally is the word and the idea there. It's it's the the whole idea of compassion really is to suffer with a person or with a people. And God says, it's my time to go down and not just have compassion, but to compassion eight. The action of showing compassion. He said, it's my time to step down into this. Guys, in in the Bible, and particularly in Hebrew culture itself, a person's name represents them and their character. God's name says everything that you need to know about him. His character shines through the truth of every word that defines him. God's name, Yahweh, Yahweh, El, is associated with every bit of his character. It's kind of like this. When I say the word Lamborghini, does an image pop into your head? When I say the word Rolls Royce, does an image pop into your head? (laughs) We think expensive, good craftsmanship, detail. See, there there are brands and things in our life that we just say a simple word and we're like, I know what you're talking about. Like, I was going to do this whole little bit here where I played the whole, like, you know, when I say the word Ford, what does everybody think of? You know, I, and I'm not going to go there, all right? I'm not going to play that game. When we hear the word God, God has a reputation. A reputation that has been built up over time in the course of history, first in the history of his people Israel and also in our own lives guys he has stamped his name not only in all of creation but on his covenant on his promises to his people Israel and his promises to us and that covenant those promises are based on his character and his reputation guys we get a a glimpse of God's glory when we get an understanding of his name but to know God's glory and truly know that and who he really is, we must know something of his character. And so that's the second aspect of what we get here. He doesn't just reveal his name. We get a list of what defines God at the core of who he really is. God lists several different attributes and traits here that describe what he is like. And God says right off the bat, what is the first word that he uses after he says his name? The God of compassion. It's a very interesting way to come out of the gate. Compassion. It's an interesting word. It is the Hebrew word rakum, which is very closely related to the Hebrew word for womb, which is rechem. You, You see what God is saying here, right? Don't you? God's compassion or his compassionate care is meant to evoke in us images of a mother tenderly caring for her vulnerable infant child. 
the seed of her womb. Rakum, compassion, is a word that expresses intense personal emotion and connection. It's, it's sometimes translated, and many times in the Bible will be translated as deeply moved. But as A.W. Tozer says, we can't simply get caught in the sugary, syrupy feelings of this truth. God's compassion, his rakum, is not just an emotional word, but it's a word that involves action as well. We saw that in Exodus chapter 2. The word often describes God's actions motivated by his emotions. And so as we move into the New Testament, Jesus becomes the ultimate compassion. From the womb of a virgin, he is to be God's proof to his people that he is with them. As Jesus embraces the sick and he cares for the outcast, he is consistently moved by human suffering. What is Matthew chapter 9, 36? You remember these words that Jesus says. When Jesus saw the crowds he had, what's that word there? Compassion. He was deeply moved because they were confused and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I believe that Jesus, I believe that God still looks on to this world today and all he wants is just for his people to know him. And all the confusion and all the chaos of life for his people to just know him. God's compassion moves him not just to feel, but to actively compassion eight. What's the next thing that it says here? The God of compassion, that God is merciful. He is gracious. It's a word that is found 13 times in the Old Testament. And, and the idea of the word speaks about and gives us the image of a stronger person that is helping a weaker person. Literally what it means is that a, a person who is superior comes and not just helps a person, but, but bows down to somebody who is inferior to them. I can think of no greater image to describe what God has done for us in coming into our world, who is so far superior to us, who has in some way bowed himself and humbled himself to someone, to some ones who are inferior Theologian Charles Ryrie puts it this way, Christianity is distinct. This is what sets Christianity apart from any other religion. It is a message of grace. Every other religion, every other way of life will be about what can you do to be better? What can you do to work your way to a higher plane or a higher level? Christianity is not that at all. It's all about grace, what someone has done for you, the compassion that God has had on you. He says, Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God's grace. Salvation is by grace, and grace governs and empowers Christian living. And then he says it very simply and succinctly, without grace, Christianity is nothing. Guys, because God is gracious, it means God treats you well. Not because you're strong, not because you're deserving. He treats you well because you are not strong and you are not deserving. Guys, that's the idea of God's grace towards us. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit and not getting a ticket. 
Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. It's going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit and getting a ticket and having the officer say to you, I'll take that right back and I'll pay it for you. That's never going to happen. At least it's never happened to me. I don't know if it's happened to you, but it's never going to happen. That is the scandal of grace. That is the wildness of grace. God is compassionate. God is merciful. What's the next thing it says here? That he is slow to anger. The word there in some translations is long-suffering. In other words, God doesn't fly off the handle. God never needs anger management classes. The Hebrew word for long-suffering or slow to anger literally means long-nosed. The idea of having a long nose that it takes a long time to show anger. That face may become red, but that that nose is so long that it never gets red. He never gets angry at the drop of a hat. So the idea behind the word is so descriptive. It's as if God takes a deep breath as he deals with us. And he deals with this world. And he deals with sin. He doesn't act immediately. What's the next thing it says here? Not, is he, not only is he compassionate and merciful and slow to anger, it says here he's filled, he is abounding in love and faithfulness. He never runs out. There's always plenty to go around. It's the Hebrew word that's used all throughout Scripture and all throughout the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And it's a very complex and a complicated word. There's no really one definition for it. That's why many people translate it as mercy. Sometimes it's translated as love. Sometimes it's translated as enduring love. Sometimes it's translated as loving kindness. In human terms, it describes a person who is loyal, consistent, never changing. When we apply it to God, it speaks of his constant, unchanging love based on the promises that he makes. It's exactly what gets Jonah so mad in the book of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 4, he says it, doesn't he? He says exactly this. I knew it, God. This is why I did not want to come to these dirty Ninevites. Because I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Not only is God filled to the brim with unfailing love, He also reveals that He is perfectly true. The idea is very simple, that God is reliable. God is dependable. God is true. You can depend on God's character. You can depend on God's promises. You can depend on God to keep His word. And what does he say? I I lavish unfailing love and I I forgive sin. Guys, simply put, and whether you believe this or not, I think like this is such a statement here. God loves to forgive sin. God majors on forgiving sin. Whatever you have going on in your life, God's got you covered. It's not too big. It's not too unmanageable for him. So not only is God slow to get angry over sin, but he's ready to pardon sin once you do it. He's eager to forgive sin. I want you to look at it this way. That in your life, in my life, in any person's life, God has a really big eraser. And it would be really easy to stop there, wouldn't it? 
like all that stuff, compassion and mercy and love and faithfulness, and he wants to forgive sin, but he says in the very next line here, I do not excuse the guilty. Though God deals in, in mercy and he delights in forgiveness, God cannot cancel his justice. God will never forgive blatant sin. God loves to forgive. God has provided a way, but if you refuse the way that God has provided, then God is left with no other choice but to judge. And really and truly what happens is we, it, we judge ourselves so often. Furthermore, God will not erase the natural consequences of sin. That's what he's talking about as he ends verse 7 there. I ask you a question again that I have already asked once is, can, can you, do you really believe that God is good? What does it really mean to say that God is good? Again, A.W. Tozer says the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind and cordial and benevolent and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy. And his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness and he takes, listen to this, he takes total pleasure and the pleasure of his people. Guys, listen to that. The goodness of God takes pleasure in the pleasure of his people. You wonder to yourself, does God have my best interest of heart? Does God even notice me? Is God even acting? Is God even moved by anything? Does God, does God just want me to be miserable? The goodness of God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Guys, what would it mean to believe that God never thinks any bad thoughts about anybody? He never had any bad thoughts about anybody. He is only ever pure in his intentions and his motives and his thoughts about you or me or anybody. It is literally impossible for him to be anything but good when it comes to his treatment of a situation or an individual person. There is nothing that you or I could do that would make God love you more or make you, him love you less. When we say that God is good, that God has a kind heart, we mean that his heart is infinitely kind. There is no boundary to it. When we say that God is good nature, good and kindly of nature, what we have termed as cordial, what A.W. Tozer would call cordial, we mean that he is infinitely so. No boundaries whatsoever. Theologian J.I. Packer says, within the constellation of God's perfect qualities, of all of his characteristics, of all of his traits, there is one in particular to which the term goodness points. The quality that God especially singled out is generosity. Have you ever thought this? Have you ever thought of God looking on your life with all of its ups and downs and saying, I want to be generous to you? How in the world would that change everything in your life if you just thought, God does. God wants to be generous 
to me. I, God says, I long to give you what would please you and bring you contentment, not because you deserve it, but because there's something about me that would be overjoyed to give you that kind of generosity. And, and listen, guys, this is so important here at this point. Ultimately, God isn't good because he does good things for you. God isn't good because of something in us. God is good because of something in him alone. That's just who God is, and he can be nothing else. God's generosity, his true generosity at the core of who he is, means a, a disposition to give to others in a way that has no selfish motives. It's not limited by what the person deserves, but constantly goes beyond it. That's the shocking truth of this scene. This moment of Scripture is really the boundary-breaking of a boundless and a generous God. And here is the thing, guys. We don't have to imagine God being like that. Oh, if he was this, generous, compassionate, full of grace, because he is that. And not just sometimes, but all of the time. He thinks and he acts that way because that's who God is. He's not down on you in your fallenness and you living in a fallen world. He is for you and he is with you in the midst of that world. It really is true, guys, that God is just waiting and wanting to do something good in and for you. Because that's the kind of God he is. And yet we look at our lives and we look at all of Scripture, we know the truth of this world, this world is fallen and in sin. We are fallen and we are in sin, although many of us are saved. And we have to ask the question, we have to stop at this point, and again, not just ca caught up in the lovey-dovey stuff, but why in the world are we not utterly destroyed in our sinfulness? And guys, I, I don't know of any other sufficient answer except for that God, of his goodness, spared us at one point in time, and he continually spares us over and over and over again. The cordial, kind intention, God spared us. Why in the world would the Son of God bleed for us? Only out of his goodness, only out of God's goodness, his loving kindness, there is no other answer to that. Guys, even the best among us don't receive the goodness of God because we are good, but solely because he is good. From his goodness, from his loving kindness, his good-natured benevolence, God does it. It is the source of everything about us. How is it that God can forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin and at the same time not leave the guilty unpunished? On one hand, it's because God is one. And I said this in Bible study. His, his attributes never clash and they never quarrel. They never face off to fight it out against each other. No attribute of God is greater than any other one. And yet, guys, don't we know that in life there are attributes of God that can be needed more at a particular time? 
And I'm convinced that for most of us, many times in life, many moments of our life, the attribute that we really need to know, the attribute that we really need to see to see who God really is, is his compassion. The grace of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God is not greater than the justice or the holiness of God, but for fallen creatures like us, it is what we most desperately need in our lives. And that's why we sing, and we've already sung it this morning, why we say that grace is so great. Why we say grace is so amazing. As we begin to transition into a time of, of taking these words that we've heard in, in God's word and we think about the sacrifice that he's made for us and we will take communion here in just a moment. It's why we ultimately give the answer to how a holy and a perfect God can live and dwell with a sinful, rebellious people is ever, only, and always Jesus. Forgiveness and punishment, mercy and justice, grace and truth meet in Jesus. He holds all of those things together. Guys, we are desperate, wicked sinners. But thank you, God, that we have a kind and a gracious Savior. What is grace? What does it ultimately mean? How does it communicate a righteous God choosing to love us? Why do we every single week come to a time of observing the Lord's Supper and what he has done for us? I think it is best summed up in this line. That grace and the grace of God can live with people with whom no one else could ever live. Unlovable people. That's what grace does allows God to live with us. Guys, the way that God reveals his own goodness and his grace and his compassion is through his Son. We often say that Jesus is God in flesh, but perhaps more appropriately and specifically, that Jesus is God's goodness in the flesh. Guys, have you, have you ever considered how valuable you must be that God has given the highest price and paid the highest price that he can for you. Guys, it's the cross that gives us the clearest and most compelling evidence that God has our best interests at heart. As Chip Ingram says, if someone paid a million dollar ransom to free you, do you really have to wonder who's going to buy lunch the next day? If if God has sent his only begotten and loved son to the cross for you, do you really have to wonder if he's going to continue to be good and loving and kind and compassionate towards you? This, guys, is the mercy God shows to us. It would be enough for God to simply say, I love you, but he did more than that. He did more than just have compassion. He showed compassion and demonstrated his love by sending his son to the cross. He, again, he compassionated. God God will never ask us to do things or to go through things in life that are not ultimately for our best and for our good and for his glory. You will never miss out if you do life God's way because you will always be assured of God's goodness in all things for all time. 
Guys, what would happen in your life? What would happen in my life? What would happen in our life if we saw God this way? All of God for who he really is. In all of his goodness, in all of his compassion, in all of his mercy, in all of his unfailing love, in all of his faithfulness. It is possible to hold together his grace and his long-suffering and his loyal love and his wrath and his anger and his justice because that is who God is all the way through all the time. I was reminded as I was preparing this sermon of one of the great, great lines of Scripture. It comes from James chapter 1, verse 17, and it simply says this, and I think it sums everything up for this morning. Whatever is good and whatever is perfect comes down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens, and He never changes, and He never casts a shifting shadow. Charles Spurgeon once said that the highest science, the the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, the greatest pursuit which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name and the nature and the person and the work and the doings and the existence of the great God whom we call Father. Guys, it it is humbling, it is encouraging, and frankly, it is way overwhelming to consider that at every moment of history, when we were at our worst, God is at his best. And he seems to constantly be saying through every word and every chapter and every book of this Bible, he seems to be saying individually to every single person here this morning, you are worth saving. Over and over again, he says that. If you would just hear that in your life, what would it do to change your life? No matter what chaos you are in, no matter what sin you are stuck under and buried under, God consistently says to his people, you are worth saving. Guys, that's the kind of of God that we have. What would change if you started to see God as he really is? This morning as the worship team comes back up here and we move into a time of communion, I I want that to be your focus this morning. And not in some selfish way that, oh God, you love me and oh, I'm just, I'm just the best. Why would you not love me, God? But we would come before God this morning in this time of communion, observing the Lord's Supper, and we would come and we would understand that, whoa, I am sinful. The Apostle Paul said it well, didn't he? I mean, the Apostle Paul himself, one of the greatest evangelist preachers, followers of God in all of Christian history, and what does he say? I am sinful chief among sinners. May that be our thought this morning as you have a time to meditate and think about the Lord's Supper. That it's not about somebody else and it's not about somebody else's sin. Woe is me. I'm at the top of that list. Nobody higher than me when it comes to the sin factor. 
But there's nothing greater than the grace of God to take us in our sin and to hold us and to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Just because I love you and that's who I am. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I pray that we would see that again, not in some incredibly selfish way, not in some emotional way, not in some way that we use the word love in our culture, in our society today, but we would see love as it truly is in you, in all of the ways that you display and present yourself to us. That even when we are wayward, even when we have gone sideways, even when we are stubborn and we are rebellious and as he would use for his own people Israel in the Old Testament, even when we are stiff-necked. But Lord, you are constantly saying to us, you are totally worth saving. May, Lord, that humble us. May, Lord, that this morning break us. That you are our God. But more importantly, we are your beloved, treasured sons and daughters. Lord, as we come before you this morning in this time of the Lord's Supper and Communion, and as we finish this service, may we adore you. May we bow our hearts before you for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do in our lives. If you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, what would you withhold from us? What would you not give us so that we have deep, deep pleasure in you? Not the things that you give us, but in you. You, Lord, delight in our pleasure. And for that, we thank you. We worship you. In this time that we have to think and to meditate, Lord, may we see your heart May we be reminded of your heart all over again. And in a million ways that you bless us in this life, we would see that you are good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things.